Let's take our uh, Bibles, if you would, and turn with me in the book of Acts, chapter number 3. As you turn with me in Acts, chapter number 3, we have uh, begun a journey in the book of Acts, and I know I uh, probably say that every week, but again, I believe it's uh, very important that we are interested in uh, first century Christianity, not 21st century Christianity, or to whatever the culture wants, or whatever the church wants to adapt to the culture in whatever uh, setting it is in. Uh, we believe that the church should always be the same. No matter what the culture is, it should be, as First uh, Timothy says, the pillar and ground of the truth, and truth never changes. And as we come to Acts chapter number 3, before we begin reading and pick up where we left off, we'll begin reading in verse number 14. Uh, Peter is uh, giving a message in response to the crowd that are thronging. If you remember, the man who was lame from his mother's womb has been healed, and uh, people are thronging around, and they're basically exalting uh, Peter and John for this miracle that was done, and, and Peter is going to confront them uh, and basically show them that they're not looking for the right things. Uh, we talked about in chapter number 1, we saw particularly the preparation of the church. There was a command, remember, to wait and for them to be witnesses. We also saw the conduct of the first century church. We saw their submission and supplication. They were in one accord and submitted to the word of God and they were praying together. And also in chapter 3 we saw the pattern of the church. If you remember, chapter 2 begins with the miracle of Pentecost and uh, the Holy Ghost uh, demonstrating. He comes down and they're all speaking with tongues that were known to the people who were hearing what was being preached. And what were they preaching? What were they speaking? The wonderful works of God. Uh, we also saw that the message was focused in chapter 2 on Jesus Christ, how He is both Lord and Christ. And that is the emphasis of the church. And then we, we find, if you would, some pattern of the ministry of the church. They continued steadfastly in doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and in prayers. And we've made this important um, uh, or declare this important truth that if there is an, an alignment that is needed in the 21st century, it is an alignment back to the Word of God. Now, we, we've read all the blogs and uh, listened to all the podcasts and all those things, and basically there's a, the promotion today that churches need to adapt to the culture, they need to change, they need to adapt their ways to fit this the demands of the 21st century if the church is going to survive in the 21st century. And I say that if the true church is going to survive in the 21st century, it must align itself to the Word of God, not to the new ideas of the day. Uh, and so we see that in chapter 2, whatever we find the church in chapter 2, I pray that that is what is found in this church, and may God help us. But in chapter 3, we see the priority of the church, and I believe we find an important truth here that this begins with this lame man, and it, it would seem to us a random miracle that God just would kind of pick out out of the blue. Out of all the miracles that were done, we know they're not all recorded, but this particular miracle is recorded for us for a particular reason. And that is because of what happened. If you remember the lame man, as we've already read and studied, he uh, was healed, and this was the man that stood at the beautiful gate, and people knew this man. He had been that way from his mother's womb. He was impotent. He was incapable of getting himself to the beautiful gate, and he was a beggar, and all of a sudden now he is leaping, uh, praising God, he is holding Peter and John uh, 
in his hands and people know this man, they see this miracle and they throng about and they're amazed and they're wondering. It begins kind of like chapter 2 began with the miracle of Pentecost. There's another miracle and what are people interested in? They are interested in the miracle. They're amazed. But what is interesting in chapter 2 when Peter preaches in response to the amazement of Pentecost and here in chapter number 3 when Peter preaches in response to the amazement of this miracle, I want you to notice what he preaches. He preaches Jesus Christ. That's his message. That's his focus. That is the priority of the church. And we made this determination that the priority of the church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is one message. It is an unchanging message. And this message centers on the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that we all understand, at least everybody in this room, that Jesus Christ is the answer for the world. What the church needs to be involved in is not some soup kitchen, although that's a good thing. It's not to, if you would, build orphanages. It's not to do all those things. By the way, that are all good things. But often the church is bogged down with all those things and forgets its priority. And its priority is the message. Now notice in chapter 3, Peter didn't say, hey, you want to speak in tongues? Let me tell you how you can speak in tongues. And chapter 2 says, hey, you see this lame man walk, let me tell you, come to this healing school and let me teach you how to heal. That's not what he said. He says, you want to know what this Pentecost is all about? I'll tell you who it's about. It's about Jesus Christ. You want to know what this lame man being raised to walk in this way? You want to know what this is about? It's about Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about. And so we have those similarities in chapter 2 and in chapter Number three, but we begin here, notice in the message, if we go back to verse 12, and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, what meaneth this? Others mocking said, actually that's chapter 2, sorry, chapter 3. Verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, and why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom he delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses." And his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I would that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before hath showed by the mouth of all of his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Here it is, verse 19. Repent ye therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and He shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all of His holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren. Like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people, yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, 
As many have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham and to thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning every one of you from his iniquities. I would like to draw your attention, if you would, to verse number 19. The call of Peter is this, as it was in chapter 2, as it was the call from John the Baptist, and as it was the first call from Jesus Christ himself, repent. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, notice, that your sins may be blotted out. It is difficult to read this chapter without pointing this truth out. I would like to preach for just a few moments this morning on this subject, that your sins may be blotted out. That your sins may be blotted out. We looked at the first part of the message as we looked in chapter 12. Peter responds at the amazement, at the wonder, at the throng of the crowd that are pressing upon Peter and John and amazed. And again, as Peter did in chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, he brings the attention to Jesus Christ and in the middle message as he introduces Jesus Christ and talks to them about what they did, he says in verse number 14, you denied him, he desired that the murderer be granted unto you, ye killed him in verse number 15, and he says in verse 17, and now brethren I would that through ignorance ye did it as did also your fathers, and what is the call, what are they supposed to do with all of this? Verse 19, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. I want to see, number one, we see the confrontation. You know that uh, word repent is a confronting term, isn't it? It kind of strikes at the heart of man as we uh, find throughout the preaching in the book of Acts. We find, for example, in Stephen, when he was preaching what happened, uh, they, well, in chapter 2, when Peter preached, they were pricked in the heart. When Stephen preached, their heart was smitten. They, they were so angry, they were confronted when there was this call for them to repent. So this call again is a confrontation. These people had done that which was wrong, and so Peter was now confronting them with their sin. And we ask ourselves today, what is the message of the church? What is supposed the church supposed to do? Well, the church is supposed to confront the world. That there's a call from the church, as we talked about in the pattern, the words from Peter in Acts 2 is, repent. Here it is in Acts chapter 3 again, repent. It was the first message from John the Baptist, repent. It was the first message from Jesus Christ, repent. That is a confrontation. And by the way, it is good for us to be confronted with the truth. It is always good for us to be confronted with the Word of God and for the, with the truth here that Peter is preaching. I want us to notice several things about this confrontation. Number one, this confrontation, we see that repentance is demanded. And yes, I use the word demanded. Uh, in other words, for conversion to happen in verse number 19 and for sins to be blotted out, there has to be a repentance that takes place in the life of the individual. And it is evident here that they had rejected Christ as the Messiah. However, as we examine Peter's sermon, he mentions a list of specific charges against them. And so we ask ourselves here, if 
They're going to, the idea of repenting means to change your mind, uh, to kind of, uh, you've been exposed to the truth. What is it that Peter, if you would, laid at their feet and charged them with that they needed to repent? Well, I, I believe there's three things that they needed to repent of, and we find this in a, a specific order in verse number 13 and 14, but notice particularly in verse number 14. He says, but ye... That's the people who, again, these are the same people that had shouted crucify him. These are the same people now that are thronging around uh, Peter and John, amazed at the miracle. He says, ye denied the Holy One and the just. And, number two, desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And number three, and killed the Prince of Life. I find three specific charges, and I believe those are properly found in that order. We see as we think about this repentance that is demanded, we see first of all their unjustifiable denial. Their unjustifiable denial. The Bible says twice, once in verse number 13 and once in verse number 14, that they denied the Lord. They rejected Him. They denied Him. Denied what? They denied who He was. Now, now, if you remember, it's kind of peculiar because as we read the ministry of Jesus Christ through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is evident that wherever Jesus Christ went, there were thousands of people that had gathered. Often Jesus Christ, we had the feeding of the 3,000, the feeding of the 5,000, and uh, we have all those miracles, and there's people uh, very early on, even in Galilee, people from, who came from as far as 60 miles away to hear Jesus Christ preach, to hear Him teach, to see the miracles, and we know that uh, people from everywhere brought the lame, they brought the sick, they brought the people possessed with the devils, and Jesus Christ did many wonderful works, but yet, they did not accept Him as Messiah. It is evident that Jesus Christ, on several occasions, He escaped from the crowd because they wanted to, to take Him by force and to set Him up as the King. They wanted to, if you would, overthrow the Roman government, they were interested in some physical deliverance from the taxation of the Roman government. Some of them wanted deliverance from demon possession. Uh, they wanted uh, deliverance from uh, their infirmities, physical infirmities. But most of them were not interested in Messiah. Now you say, well, how can you say that? Because that's the truth. And the truth is, the world in its majority has never been interested in the Messiah. The world is predominantly concerned with the now, with the present. And often people now, today, often they join the religion with that a desire to find some relief. They think to themselves, well, if I turn over my life a new leaf, maybe I'll be more financially stable. If I start going to church, maybe some good things will start happening in my life. And they don't come to the Word of God to be changed and to be forgiven of sin. They come because they want some physical in their life, some temporary relief. That's what we see, the condition of the people. Again, that is what these people are interested in. Here's a layman that's walking. We are interested now in these people. It's amazing they weren't interested before in Peter and John. But as soon as the miracle comes about, now they are interested. You see, Jesus Christ had done the miracles, and yet these same people, uh, by the way, we are fully aware that Jesus Christ healed more than 120 people. But yet that's all we find in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. 
And we ask ourselves, where are the thousands of people that have been healed? Where are all those people whose, if you would, physical lives have been changed by Jesus Christ? Where are they? They're not there. Why? Because they were never interested in the Messiah in the first place. Why? Because Messiah did not come to deliver them from their infirmities. He came to deliver them from their sin. And that is a confrontation that the world does not like. The repentance is demanded again. They're unjustifiable denial. They know. I mean, the miracles proved who Jesus was, and yet they still denied Him. It is, uh, to me, uh, alarming that people would uh, be concerned today. Well, you know what? I will believe in your God, and I'll believe in the Bible. If I could just see some miracle, if God could come down from heaven and do something supernatural that would get my attention, I tell you, the world would still not believe. Jesus was there, and they did not believe he did all the miracles and they still did not believe He was raised from the dead and they still did not believe. And so their repentance was demanded. We see their unjustifiable denial. We see number two, their ungodly desires. What's interesting is they first denied the Holy One. They denied Jesus Christ. And again, if you remember when He was accused, they could find nothing wrong. Even Pilate says, I, I want to release Him. He did everything He could do to release Him. Because he found no fault, he found no fault in him. But that led to their ungodly desire. Not only did they deny him, their ungodly desires manifested. Verse number 14, they denied, but you denied the Holy One and the just, and here it is, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. That's interesting. I, I, you, you would think that they would want Jesus to hang around a little longer and to continue to do the miracles. You think by all that they did, they wanted to have this, uh, uh, this great teacher that would continue to teach him, that thousands of people would come and find the miracles. But it's interesting that as soon as they denied him, as soon as they saw that Jesus Christ did not give them what they wanted, then their desire is manifested. They would rather desire to have a murderer to be granted unto them than to have a just and holy man released. That's troubling, isn't it? Uh, that, that this ungodly desire, their heart is revealed in the fact that they desire for Barabbas, by the way, to be released and for Christ to be crucified. Barabbas, if you remember, was a robber. He was a man who took part in uh, raising an insurrection. He also, in the process of it, committed murder in the process of that insurrection. And we ask ourselves, why did they want such a man to be released, to be in their midst? I'd say to us, well, we, we certainly would want that in society. A robber and a murderer, someone who it would be nothing for him to take somebody else's life. You wouldn't want somebody like that in society. But this crowd wanted that instead of Jesus Christ. How? Why? It makes absolutely no sense and it doesn't fit. But yet, that's what they were to repent of. Their unjustifiable denial, their ungodly desires, but thirdly, their unlawful deed. In verse number 15, he goes on and goes to the third step. You denied him, you desired a murderer, and thirdly, and killed the prince of life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are all witnesses. And so we see their unlawful deal. They, they killed an innocent man. They, they, they did something that to us would be, how could this be? Why would they want a good man 
to be crucified? Why would they want a murderer to be released? And I say to us, such is the condition of the world. Why is the world as it is? The world is as it is because of the denial of God, of God's Word and of Jesus Christ. The world is as it is because of their ungodly desires. And the world is as it is because of their unlawful deeds. They love their sin and they want to stay in it. And that is why the world is as it is. Not only do we see the repentance demanded in this confrontation, but we also see, secondly, the reason detailed. Here's the question that, to me, I, I was looking at those words. They denied, they desired, they killed a just man. It was not just the religious crowd. Do we understand? Uh, there were thousands of people who were the regular people in society. It was not just the Sanhedrin council. It was all the people in society who were shouting, crucify him. They all did that. But why? Why did they do that? Well, I want you to notice here the reason that is detailed in verse number 17. He says, And now, brethren, I would that through... What's the next word? Ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. Now, I'm interested in that word, ignorance. Uh, you know... How can we explain what they did to, to us? To any reasonable person, it would seem unjustifiable. How, how can you explain that we explain it in the way that everything is explained today, particularly in the year 2020? You say what? Ignorance. The word ignorance is an interesting word if you look and there's... You study the etymology of words, it's quite interesting, but the, it's a combination of two words. The first part, uh, of, uh, it's the first part of that word is the, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Alpha, this is just the letter A. It is often used in combination with a word to give a contradiction of the word. So it's placed at the beginning. For example, in the English language, we have the word muse. The word muse means to think. But if you put the word ah, the letter A, in front of muse, what does it say? It says ah muse. So muse means to think. If you add A in front of it, it's contradicting what that word is. It means not to think. So amusement parks, places where you don't think. Right? So we have that in the English language, and that's the same here for the, 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 the word that is used for ignorance here. Uh, in other words, the words means, the word itself without the letter A in front of it means to exercise the mind, to comprehend, to think, to understand. And so by adding the first letter A, we find the contradiction of the word. Therefore, the word means not to exercise the mind, not to comprehend, not to think, not to understand. Now, we must not misunderstand ignorance because as Many people uh, did uh, or define ignorance today as well. It's someone who does not know uh, because he has not been taught. It is someone who is ignorant of something. Uh, if we think about uh, children at the table who don't have manners, we say, well, it's not that they, have, they, they, haven't, been, that they haven't been taught, they are ignorant. And so we, we think about the word ignorance as if it is something they don't know. And so uh, it's, uh, it's not their fault. That's not what we're talking about. It's not the type of ignorance we're talking about. Rather, these people had been taught 
But what is, what is at the root, if you would, of this reason? Well, what's at the root of this ignorance? I will tell you what it is. It's one word. Lust. Now you say, well, you have to justify that with Scripture. I'm glad you said that. In Ephesians chapter 4, if you turn with me, in Ephesians chapter number 4, I want you to see throughout the Word of God the connection between ignorance and lust. In Ephesians chapter 4, as he's talking about the condition before salvation, notice what he says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse number 17. He says this, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. So he says, don't be, like, don't be what you were before you were saved. Verse 18, having, that's the Gentiles, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Here it is, you see. Uh, how, why do they do what they do? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Where does that come from? Because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. You see, the ignorance that is in them, the blindness of the hearts, why? Their past feeling, they've given themselves unto lasciviousness. The word lasciviousness is a, a big word for lust. If you go with me and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we find another example in verse number 13, 1 Peter 1.13. Notice what he says here, and here in that chapter he's talking about holiness. Notice what he says, 1 Peter 1.13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fastening yourselves, here it is, according to the former lust in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all matter of conversation, because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And so it says, look, be as obedient children, don't fashion yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. Why are people ignorant today of God and Jesus Christ and the gospel? Because of their lust. If you go with me to Mark chapter 4, we find another example or an illustration given by the Lord Jesus Christ as He's talking about the seed of the Word and those that receive the Word and those that reject the Word. In Mark chapter number 4, if you go with me to verse number 18, Jesus Christ is giving the interpretation of this parable and in Mark chapter number 4, notice with me in verse number 18, he um, talks about the seed that falls among thorns. Notice verse 18. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. You get that? They hear the word. What happens? And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things in, in entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. So we ask ourselves today when the Word of God is sown and it goes out and the Word of God is preached and it is taught and it travels around the world, why do men reject or why does it not take root? I'll tell you why. Because of lust. The cares of this world and we live in a world that is consumed by everything in this world and they're consumed to bring things, to desire things, to gain things, to consume upon it their own loss. And that is why they are ignorant, not because they have not heard, but because they are more interested in fulfilling their loss. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's how the world works. It works to consume everything upon its own lust. We are not dealing here with someone 
who has not been taught, when we think about this word ignorance, we are dealing with someone who has been taught, but the teaching and the preaching and the truth has been choked out by lust. We ask ourselves, what is the problem with the world today? I'll tell you what the problem is. Why does the world refuse to hear the truth? Because of lust. You go with me to one more in 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If we notice with me in verse number 3, uh, Paul is concerned about the gospel. Notice what he says, 2 Corinthians 4 3. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Well, what, 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 so, what does the world look like? Verse 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So the God of this world hath blinded their minds. And we ask ourselves, how does He blind the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ? Because He gives them something else. Uh, that's the pattern of the devil, is it not? That was from the beginning in Genesis chapter number 3. Uh, Adam and Eve had everything they, they, could, uh, they could wish for, they could ask for. And so, uh, what, what, what did uh, uh, Satan provoke in Eve? He brought her in and he said, Hey, look, uh, this, uh, uh, this is the tree and you, can, you, you can't touch it. Why, why would God keep this from you? And uh, he began to think that it was a tree that was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make wine wise. And she took of the fruit. All right. She began to lust for something that she did not need. To desire something that she thought would bring something to her that did not bring at all. Lust. You see, how, why is the world blind? I'll tell you why the world is blind to God and Jesus Christ and sin and the world does not repent. Because the world is ignorant they are more interested in the now and satisfying their lusts and their desires. And because the message of Christianity says repent and God will change your life, the truth is they do not want their life to change. One missionary put it this way. He says, when I went to Africa, I thought that God called me to go to Africa because I thought that there was a bunch of heathen running around waiting for someone to share the gospel. And I, I, I figured that nobody would tell them the gospel. And then there was a bunch of people that were raiding around. All the heathen were raiding around waiting for somebody to tell them the gospel. And so I went to Africa and I was, he said, I was motivated by humanism because I was tired of seeing the pictures and the sores and the sickness and all the things that were going on in Africa. And so I wanted to go there. He says, and I recognized when I arrived in Africa uh, that uh, the people were not interested in the gospel. These people, they loved their sin and they wanted to stay in it. He says, and I, when I went to Africa, I thought that all this was a sham and a mockery. Because I thought that the heathen were interested in the gospel and the light. And I found that that was the contrary. Well, God spoke to him. He says, as the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and says that God didn't send you to Africa for the sake of the heathen. God sent you to Africa for my sake. They deserve hell, but I love them and I endure the agonies of hell for them. I didn't send you to Africa for, my, for, for their sake. I send you to Africa for my sake. You see... Uh, the world is as it is, and the world will remain unchanged. Why? Because the world loves its sin. And so, 
We think about this confrontation, the repentance that is demanded, the reason that is detailed, ignorance, and let's not misunderstand ignorance. He says, and go back, go back with me to Acts, chapter number 3. He says, Repent ye therefore, and be converted. The word converted simply means to turn. The context makes it clear that they were called to repent and to turn to the Lord. Change their mind about Jesus Christ. Don't deny Him. Accept Him. Repent of what you said and what you did to Christ and turn to Him. He's the answer for your life. Repent and be converted. The one that they had crucified was the one they had to confess. The one that they had denied was the one they had to accept. So repent and be converted. He goes on to say that your sins may be blotted out when the time of the refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and He shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. Now, it's interesting here, in this call to repentance, He throws something uh, out. He says, not only the repentance that is demanded, the reason uh, that is detailed, but thirdly, we see the restitution that is determined. Well, why is uh, Peter so eager to give this message? Because there is coming a day of restitution. There's something coming in the future. He's talking about Jesus Christ is going to come and he's talking about a future event and not something that has already happened. He's talking about the word that is used here is the word refreshing at the end of verse 19 and also the word in verse 21, restitution of all things. What is he talking about? Well, for that we would go to Romans chapter number 8 as the explanation is given for the condition of the world. If you remember in Romans chapter number 8, He's talking about the uh, curse in the world, and he says this in verse number 19 of Romans 8, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves grow within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. In other words, there is a final restitution that is coming, and right now the whole world is groaning and is in pain uh, together until now, and this is the way it will remain until what? Until the final restitution. Now we know at the end there will be a new heaven as it is described for us and a new earth and God's going to restore everything the way He intended it to be. There is coming that day. But what comes before that is what? The judgment of God. The judgment of God is coming. The Lord, the first time He came, He came as a, uh, as a lamb, if you would. He came with open arms. He came with eyes of compassion when, when He comes again. His eyes will be as a flame of fire. And the world will be judged before the final restitution. And so, this would go along well with this confrontation. You see, that is the trouble with the world. The world cares very little for what is to come. The world always delays. Well, if I see it then, then I'll change. Why? Because the world, again, is interested in fulfilling its us now. We live in a society that is consumed, you know, Thanksgiving week, I don't know why they added this 
Black Friday and all those. Now, I'm sure that we all participate and enjoy the sales and all those things, but really, the week of Thanksgiving? Of all the years, of all the, the days in the year, 365, you choose the day, the night, and the day after Thanksgiving? Why does the world do that? Because the world knows, or the world knows what the world wants. Let's give what the world wants. Let's forget about Thanksgiving. Let's not rejoice and be content with what we have. We need to have more. Why? Because the world can never have enough. You see, that Black Friday is unending. It will never. Thanksgiving will stop in America. The Black Friday will never stop. Why? Because it is the ways of the world. So we find the confrontation, but then it brings us, secondly, to the confirmation. He goes on in verse 22, says, For now he's talking to predominantly Jews here. They, again, were at the temple. For Moses truly said unto the Father, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which shall not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Now that's the words of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter number 18. And then in verse 25 he says, uh, Ye are the children of, or verse 24, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. There's a few times in the Bible when Moses and Samuel are mentioned together. We find that in Psalm 99, verse 6, Moses and Aaron among his priests, and Samuel among them that call upon his name. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 1, Then said the Lord unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, Yet my mind could not be towards this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. But why is Moses and Samuel used in combination? Well, uh, if you study the chronology of the Bible, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, when the era of Moses ends, the Bible says, And there arose not a prophet since in Israel, like unto Moses unto the Lord, uh, whom the Lord knew face to face. And really Moses is the last one at the close from the departure of Egypt who was called a prophet. Joshua is not called a prophet. None of the judges are called prophets either. But who would be the next prophet? It would be Samuel. We would call him the last judge and the first prophet. And the Bible says, and the record of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, there is the record of uh, the prophecy, if you would, as prophesying about Christ. So Moses, in the timeline of Israel, would be the last one in the timeline that had prophesied about Christ, and the next one after that would have been Samuel, who prophesied about Christ. And then he goes on to say in Acts chapter 3, he says, Ye and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after. So all the minor and the major prophets that follow after Samuel and all the prophets after that who prophesied about Christ. So Moses in the timeline of Israel was the last prophet, if you would. There was a gap. Uh, and then Samuel was the next prophet, and then all the ones that came after who prophesied specifically of Christ. And so he basically says uh, that all that you have as Israel, as this privilege, is quite amazing because you have all those prophecies. It's not anything new. You knew that God would raise up a man to preach this message. And those that do not accept this message would be rejected. Samuel, all those that follow after, as many have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. So see, the problem, their ignorance is not that they didn't know. 
is that there's something in their life that took precedence of what, over, over what they did. Someone defined ignorance as being dumb on purpose. Well, I think that's quite accurate. It is not someone that, it's someone that does know, but yet there's too much in their life that are interested in now that it makes them uninterested in the things of God. He says in verse 25, Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham and to thy seed, Shall all the kindred of the earth be blessed unto you first? God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from his iniquities until he references back to Abraham and he says, Look, he promised to the seed uh, that in thy seed all families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a wonderful promise. But he says, but that promise comes to you first. The Jews got to hear the gospel first. They were the ones that the, uh, he, the Bible says he came unto his own and his own received him not. They were fully aware of what this promise was about. In Galatians, Paul makes it clear in the teaching that when the teaching of in thy seed, Abraham understood that God was not talking about seeds. Abraham understood that he was talking about a seed, which is Christ. So they were not without knowledge of these things. We see here that they were to repent because they were more interested in the temporal and consuming things on their lust than they were in the saving message of the gospel. So we see the confrontation, we see the confirmation, but thirdly, we see the consolation. So what's the message for these people? who have uh, denied the Lord, who desired a murderer, who killed the Holy One and the just, and who received all the prophecy through the century. These same people are the rejectors, are the one who are interested in that which is uh, temporary. And what is in it for them? Well, verse 19 and verse 26 tells us, Repent ye therefore and be converted. Here it is, that your sins may be blotted out. These are the same people he's talking to. The same people that denied the Lord, the same people that desired a murder instead of the Lord, the same people that killed Him. These are the same people that says, repent, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. There's another time that this expression is used, if you go with me to Colossians chapter 2. What does it mean for our sins to be blotted out? In Colossians chapter number 2, we find again this wonderful truth. Colossians 2, notice with me in verse number 13, he says this, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Here it is, verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, having spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Think about that. What happened as regeneration, there is a blotting out that took place. Uh, uh, the word to blot out means to obliterate. It means to erase. It means to completely wipe something away. Well, we ask ourselves here, what is it that's going to be blotted out? What is it that is blotted out if we are to repent and be converted that our sins may be blotted out? We have to understand all that is entailed in that sin. What is it that is being blotted out? Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. 
which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And so we ask ourselves here, what, what is it that as we walk around in this earth and as we like to consume things upon our own lust, and yet the message of the gospel says here that your sins can be blotted out. Understand what that means. All the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, we understand the law of God. We understand the demands of a holy God and that demand cannot be met by any man. And so we think about uh, the fact that we deserve to die. We deserve hell. Why? Because of all the handwriting of ordinances that's against us. We've sinned against the holy God. We are incapable of producing righteousness in of ourselves. And we've learned that in Sunday school. And so we ask ourselves, how can our sins be blotted out through the death of Christ on the cross of Calvary? Why? Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, understand what happened on the top here. We know that His name was inscribed the King of the Jews. But understand there was much more that was written in heaven than just Jesus, King of the Jews. What was written in heaven was all of our filth, all of our transgressions, all of our evil thoughts, all of our transgression of the law, everything that is called sin in the sight of God that misses the mark of God's righteousness all of that handwriting of ordinances that was against us was blotted out. It's gone. It's been annihilated. It's never to be remembered again. That's what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary. That is the message for those who deny, who desire a murderer, who kill the Lord Jesus Christ. The message for the world is that your sins can be blotted out. Every single thing that you've ever done wrong, every evil thought you've ever had, every uh, wrong desire you've ever had, every wrong action, everything you've ever done wrong can be blotted out by the blood of Jesus Christ. For these same people, I did that to the Lord. He says, Repent, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. That should cause, uh, if you would, in our hearts, a little time of shouting and rejoicing, should it not? That everything wrong and sinful about our lives has been blotted out. It's been erased. It's been obliterated. And when we understand that that's not of ourselves, it's by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful truth. Not only that, he says in Acts chapter 3, that is the first part, as he says repent, he introduces right away this idea of blotting out your sins. And then he says at the end in verse 26, and to you first, God, having raised up His Son, Jesus, sent Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from His iniquities. You see, it was not just a blotting out that happened. What happens at salvation, as we talked about this morning, is that there's a turning that God does in our lives. Away from iniquities. How can the world cease to deny the Lord, to desire a murderer, and to kill the Prince of Life. I'll tell you how. By salvation. You see, because when salvation happens, the denial ceases. The wrong desires are crucified with Christ. The deeds that are evil. God intends in salvation to turn those things around in our lives. That's the great consolation of this message. 
Should anything else take the priority of the church? Is there anything else that the church can be involved in that is as wonderful as that? No. Not a thousand times. No amount of food pantries, orphanages, hospitals, no amount of good deeds and picking up trash in the community can offset the wonderful message of the church. It's a message that the sins of the world can be blotted out in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we've seen, may this be the priority of His church. That your sins may be blotted out. I ask you today, have your sins been blotted out? So how can that be? It's very simple. Repent and be converted. Repent of who you are, of your sin, and turn to Christ. He will take you. He's never rejected a man. You say, how could that be? I'm too evil, I'm too bad. Because the work of God is to blot out everything. To obliterate. To do away with everything. And so if it's not you, you can not have to wait any moment. You can right now in your seat trust Him as your Savior. Recognize what He did for you. Stop living a life for the present to consume things on your lust. Turn to Christ. He will save you. May the Lord help us as Christians to rejoice in that wonderful truth.